Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. You know, I find as I, as I look for some movies to illustrate the point, <laughs> some of these movies, I feel like came out not as long ago as they did. And then I look at when the movie came out and it's like, holy smokes, that came out a lot longer than I thought it did. That was from 1995. So if you remember Apollo 13, that was in 1995. It's been a while. Uh, some of you may remember the movie. Some of you lived through the actual real event. And so you're like, yeah, whatever, the movie's fine. But I, was, uh, I remember watching it on TV. Uh, on April 11th, 1970, Apollo 13 was launched from the top of a Saturn V rocket. It was supposed to be the third mission to land on the moon. However, as you know, two days into the journey, there was a malfunction in the ship's oxygen tank, forcing the crew to abort their lunar mission and return to Earth inside the lunar module. The problem is that the lunar module was only designed to support two men on the moon's surface for two days. So Mission Control had to develop a way to support three men for four days on the way back. In the clip that you saw, you saw NASA engineers trying to figure out how to address a problem with the carbon dioxide filters. That capsule didn't have enough filter capacity to keep those men alive for the duration of the flight. And so they had to come up with a way to, to allow those individuals to survive. And so they had to address the proverbial problem of getting a square peg into a round hole using an assortment of spare parts that were available there inside of the lunar module. Spoiler alert, they were successful. So just so you know, Apollo 13 did manage to return safely to Earth, and of course the Apollo 13 astronauts became uh, just heroes, national icons after surviving the ordeal. I think about that, and maybe you're the kind of person who enjoys that sort of challenge. You like coming up with new ideas, new strategies. You like trying to solve unsolvable problems. If you could, at your work or wherever, you'd wipe the slate clean and just come up with a better way to do certain things. And there's certainly a place for that kind of leader. We think about some business leaders that, that are uh, working today and, and have come up with just incredible ways to do, to do new things. There are times and places where sometimes the best thing you can do is throw out the old ways, reinvent the wheel, dream it better. You prefer, if you could just say it, square pegs and round holes. And then there's others who really like maintaining round pegs to make sure that everything works exactly like it's supposed to. There are places where that sort of thinking is appropriate, and then there are places where it isn't. You know, the church is an interesting experiment in that sort of thinking. Because when you realize that we have an ancient message, the gospel is 2,000 years old, and, and the, the backdrop of the gospel is, is even older. There aren't many things lingering around today that's got that kind of age on it. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not talking about uh, medicine that's 2,000 years old. You're probably thankful that when you go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't unroll the scroll and say, let me, let me consult with, uh, you know, with, with some ancient physician to see what, how many leeches it takes to cure whatever ailment that you've got. Uh, you're probably grateful that, that uh, you know, we're not using technology from 2,000 years ago. Uh, you're, you're grateful that, that, you know, your air conditioner is not 2,000 years old. Uh, you're, you're thankful for, for those sort of things. 
And so we have this, this ancient message, but it's a message that speaks to contemporary problems. We face all sorts of things today that, man, a generation ago, they wouldn't have been considered. But as the church, we're constantly looking for new and inventive ways to get that ancient message into contemporary hearts. I was thinking yesterday as I was watching my soccer team be absolutely obliterated by Samantha's soccer team that, uh, that, that we're playing soccer to the glory of God. That 2,000 years ago, I'm sure some kid somewhere was kicking a bo- uh, some sort of a ball around 2,000 years ago, but it wasn't called soccer and it didn't have the rules that we've got today. But, but we use soccer even today as a platform by which we're communicating an ancient message. It's a relatively new sport that's being used to communicate a very old story. For much of the work that we do, we're kind of like those NASA engineers rummaging through the parts that we have on hand. We we look in the closets to see what have we got available to help us do our job. At the same time, the Lord has given us tremendous freedom in how we function as the church. There are certain constants, however, that we're not really allowed to reinvent. One of those constants is the structures or are the structures by which the church is led. The church today has made this really complex if you stop and think about it. I mean, there's all sorts of denominational tribes. I have a monthly lunch meeting with uh, pastors of different denominations and and I sit and I just listen to how how complex some of their stories can be. Uh, Depending on which tribe you belong to, you may have pastors and priests or elders, you have deacons, bishops. My Nazarene friend was talking about a phone call he got the other day from the district superintendent. That's who you get a phone call from when you're in trouble in their church, apparently. And they got all these different titles, all these different offices, all all these different positions, all these different things, and the job descriptions vary based on the tribe. In one denomination, this person does that. In this denomination, this person does that. And it's like, now, you, you got to know who are you talking to, what church do you belong to, what's your position, what, you know, you've got to define all the terms because there's so many different interpretations and, and understandings that, that go along with it. And I'll say this, the reason this is too complex is because we've just simply made a departure from the simple text of Scripture. If we just stick to what the Bible says, things would be a whole lot easier. If we just did what God's Word said, it'd make more sense. Sometimes when it comes to how we define these roles in the church, we think it's like the Lord dumped a bunch of spare parts on the table and said, y'all go figure it out. But that's not what he did. He didn't give us all these extra pieces and parts and say, go figure it out. He gave us very clear instructions on how the church should function and how the church should be led. And again, he's given us lots of freedom in how those leaders are chosen. And he's even given the church a lot of freedom in how those offices function within each church. But at the same time, there are guardrails put in place for a reason. One of the reasons I love being a Baptist, because I believe we get this part right. We may do some things wrong, and and we've done some boneheaded things in our past, but I think we get this part right when it comes to how we structure our churches. You open your Bibles, and you see two really simple things. There are deacons, and then there is the office of pastor or elder. Both of those are biblical terms that we encounter that we are comfortable with when we see them in Scripture. And it's not that you can't have committees. I think that's the running joke in Baptist churches that you can have it. I mean, we've got a, we've got a clean the carpet committee. I mean, we, we can have a committee for, for everything. We've got a weed the garden committee. We've got a, we, I mean, we have a committee for everything and anything. And the Bible doesn't prohibit us from having those sort of things. 
The Bible doesn't stop us from having ministry teams to help oversee and provide guidance to certain things. I mean, it's not that those things are prohibited, but understand this. It is possible to have a church that may or may not have a personnel team. It is possible to have a church that doesn't have that team. They choose in the way they structure themselves to not have that particular committee or team. There are no biblical requirements that the church have a budget or finance committee, even though it might be unwise to operate without one. Again, there's no biblical you must or you must not, but there is providential wisdom that God gives us that says, you know, if you're going to be an organization that collects money, it's good to have a group of people who provide leadership and how that money is stewarded and taken care of. That's just a matter of wisdom, not a matter of thou shall or thou shall not. We can have a variety of servants, even on church staffs that do ministry and facilitate ministry. You don't find kids ministry director in the Bible in terms of a position that it says the church has to have. But who among us would look at the job that our kids ministry director does and says, you know, we don't really need her. Like if you say that, then you are volunteering to be the first person to take her place. Okay, so just know that. Uh, You get to go back there and let them tie you down and wreck your knee. You get to do that instead of her. So we've got lots of servants on staff even that do ministry and facilitate ministry and those positions are based on the needs of specific congregations. If we were an inner city church, we might have a benevolence coordinator on our team who oversees handing out food and taking care of those kind of needs and and it's such a burden that it would be a position that someone has to give some time to that we would compensate for. It just depends on the context and where the church is. Not every church has those things, but there's no biblical prohibition or requirement that we have have those things. But I do say this, it's going to be very difficult to have a healthy church, to be a healthy church without a vibrant biblical deacon body and well-qualified pastors and or elders. So for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to speak to these issues. Now, beginning the first Sunday in October, we're going to be jumping into the book of Jeremiah. It's the longest book of the Bible. So before you get nervous and say, Lord, will we ever get out of the book of Jeremiah? Uh, I'm not going to go verse by verse through the whole book of Jeremiah. So everybody take a deep breath and and calm down. We're not doing it verse by verse, but we're going to cover a lot of the content of the book of Jeremiah. But but prior to getting to October, I want us to spend a couple of weeks talking about this very important topic. Um, If you've read your bulletin, you know that we're currently accepting, accepting nominations for the position of Yoke Fellow. You say, I've been to a lot of churches, but I've never heard of that before. What in the world is a yoke fellow? Well, if you don't know what it is, let me explain it to you. It's a program that is here at our church, and other churches have similar things, and it gives potential deacons and their families an opportunity to decide whether or not they want to be part of the deacon ministry for the rest of their life. Because we do believe that when a church sets you apart for ministry, unless you disqualify yourself, you are set apart for ministry. And so when someone is ordained as a deacon, unless that deacon does something dumb that disqualifies himself from being a deacon, that, that man is still a deacon. And so you got to decide, is it something you want to do for the rest of your life? And so at our church, men serve as a yoke fellow for one year. And at the end of that year, they can make a more informed decision about their giftedness and how those gifts can be better put to work in the deacon ministry. Or they can decide, you know what, my giftedness doesn't lend itself to this ministry. And guess what? That's okay. You don't have to be a deacon if the church says you you should be a deacon. You don't have to if your gifts aren't geared in that direction. 
But it also gives the church an opportunity to more closely evaluate the gifts and callings of those men who are potentially selected as deacons. As I work through the text today, maybe the Lord lays somebody on your heart to nominate for the Yoke Fellow Program. And if you're not currently a deacon, maybe you're qualified and you have been dodging that calling for a little bit. Maybe the Lord will speak to you as well. If you'd like to nominate, there's a place in the bulletin. You can either talk to me or Justin Carruth as well if there's somebody that you might like to nominate to be a Yoke Fellow. So to help us understand better, though, I want to spend some time today speaking to the nature of the office of deacon. And so if you're not a deacon, you're, you're just, I was going to say you're dismissed. You're not. Because the goal is that, is that you, it's something here for everybody. This isn't just for those who are interested and qualified to be a deacon. So don't check out on me because there's important things here for all of us because it comes to us from God's word. So we're going to turn our attention to 1 Timothy this morning. We'll be in 1 Timothy this week and next week in the third chapter. So if you've got your Bibles, the good news is, is if you've got that place really wore in on 2 Thessalonians, it still works because you're just going one page over from that place that you got broken in in 2 Thessalonians. But we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I would invite you to stand with me as I read these words from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you for the offices of your church. I thank you that in light of all the freedom that we have of how we can structure things and how we can do things and the committees we have and don't have and the staff people we have and don't have, thank you, Lord, for the consistency that we have in the fact that your scripture has set apart those who serve in the office of deacon and who serve in the office of pastor. May we recognize those offices. May we treat them with the seriousness that they deserve. And may we love your word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, be seated. I don't know what your job description looks like, but most job descriptions have got a couple of sections in it. One section of the job description often covers qualifications. It talks about what your education needs to be, what your experience needs to be, and all those sort of things. And then there's a section in the job description that is responsible, that, that talks about what the duties are. What is your job going to be? What are you going to be doing while you do this job? The thing is, is when we're talking about the ministry of a deacon, you will find that duties change based on the church in which they serve. And even though the duties may change, the qualifications should always remain consistent. So if you go to an inner city church that's got deacons who have a different set of responsibilities than we might have out here in the country, that doesn't matter because the duties change, but the qualifications remain the same and the qualifications are given to us here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
As the church grew, it turns out that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to help formalize this process because this is what happens when any organization grows. You've got to formalize the structures that help that organization function. If you're in a, if you're in a band with, with 10 people, it works differently than if you're in a marching band with 200 people. There's simply a different level of structure that goes along with that. And as any organization grows, the formalization of the processes becomes necessary. Timothy has been sent to help lead the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus has been around for a minute. And that church is growing. That church is is experiencing conversion. New people are being saved. They're making disciples. They're doing what God has asked them to do. And now Paul is helping Timothy understand how to handle that growth. So you might say that that Paul is, is formalizing a church bureaucracy, and in a sense he is. But it's necessary to help make sure that the church functions like it's supposed to. So Paul helps formalize the qualifications for these offices that would help the church to thrive. And understand this, these are not new positions. It's not that we get to 1 Timothy 3 and Paul talks about deacons and Timothy's like, what a great idea. I had no idea that this was something we could do. This has been around for a minute. We go all the way back to Acts chapter 6 in the early days of the Jerusalem church. Deacons were chosen to help meet ministry needs to widows so that the apostles had the freedom to do their ministry without hindrance. And so the, the deacons show up really early in the church's history. For our church here at Chat Valley, the ministry to widows is a key component of our deacon ministry. If you're a deacon in our church, you know you've got a widow or widower that is assigned to you. It is your responsibility to help care for that individual. Our deacon ministry may be more than that, but it's never less than that. And so if they're stripped away to nothing, deacons still here at our church have a responsibility, a responsibility to widows and widowers. But the specifics of the ministry, the duties of the deacon are also very contextualized. For a church that doesn't have a ton of widows, that may mean that deacons have a greater role to play in caring for younger families if the demographics of the church call for that. For a church that's growing, deacons may have a role to play in helping to minister to guests in our church. For many churches, deacons help serve in places like safety and security and building upkeep. It turns out that you see a lot of our deacons filling some of those roles as well as we recognize varieties of gifts and service. The various needs of various churches is why the Bible doesn't go into a great deal of specifics about the duties of a man who's called to serve in that capacity. And so it's difficult for me to say, this is what a deacon does, because the Bible doesn't give us that in great specificity. It's every church having the freedom to make those decisions. Now, qualifications is a different story. When we first look at this list of qualifications... One of the things that ought to stand out is this. One, nobody gets all these right all the time. However, there ought to be measurable growth even if we acknowledge that we come up short. The best deacons that I've ever had the chance to serve with are the deacons who look at this list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and say, oh, I don't measure up. That's okay. You may not measure up now, but you're measuring up closer today than you were yesterday. And that's the goal, is not perfection, it's growth. It's working towards that objective. It's working towards that goal. But two, and this is where this is not just for deacons, it's for everybody, these are character traits that are more than just for wannabe deacons. They're desirable for for all of us. You don't get to look at this and say, you know what, the deacon ministry's not for me, so it's okay for me to be a drunk and go out and work for dishonest gain. 
It doesn't work that way. And so again, we don't look at this and say, ah, it's just for the, for the men over there in that deacon's meeting. You know, I don't have to worry about any of that. No, you really do need to pay attention to the character that's, that's considered here in this text. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. First of all, as Paul gives us the idea of a deacon's character, he lists some important things, some important characteristics to help us better identify the appropriate character of those who ought to serve in that role. And I appreciate the the translation of these traits because it's alliterated for us. And so it's easier to remember. I mean, they all start with D. Deacon starts with D. You see where we're going here? It's easy. Okay. First of all, deacon ought to be dignified. Deacon ought to be dignified. What does that word mean? It points to the distinguished character of a man who is called to serve as a deacon. It doesn't mean that someone is stodgy or unapproachable. It means that it's someone who is respected by others. And again, we we know people who are dignified, people who are respected, but there are people who you respect who maybe you look at and say, you know, they probably wouldn't be the best deacon in the world. Because being respected, being dignified is not all by itself a standalone qualification. Because he goes on, he says that a deacon ought not be double-tongued. What's a person who's double-tongued? That's someone who talks out of both sides of their mouth. You love those people, don't you? Everybody loves being around double-tongued folks who talk out of both sides of their mouth. One Bible dictionary says that being double-tongued is speech that is hypocritical or insincere on the account of equivocation and duplicitousness. That's a lot of $5 words that he threw at us right there. But we understand what it means. Nobody wants to be around that person. And so you could be somebody who's respected, but if it turns out that you're double-tongued, suddenly you're not quite as respected as you once were. Someone who's double-tongued is someone who will say nice things to your face, but stab you in the back when you're not listening. You know when you're around those people, and you learn very quickly that you don't really want to be around those people. He goes on to say a deacon ought not be drunk. He actually says not addicted to much wine. And that speaks for itself. A deacon should not be addicted to much wine. And the question that always gets asked is how much is much? Because he says much wine. He says he shouldn't be addicted to much wine. Well, here's where the apostle Paul, guess what? He didn't tell us how much here. He used the word much, and, and if you were in a Presbyterian church this morning, much might mean something different than it does in some other circles. He didn't tell us how much, but I think the key word, we worry about how much, I think the key word is addicted. The key word is addicted. In the original language, what, it, what that word means, it means to devote some portion of one's life or efforts to something or to continually give oneself over to something. I think we understand what that means, that, that if, you're, if you're getting drunk, that's a, that's a disqualification from serving in this capacity because the Bible's very clear. We have all sorts of disagreements about how much is too much, but if you're getting drunk, you're disqualified because we recognize the Bible's very clear. You do not get drunk on wine for that leads to debauchery, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. And so addicted to much wine, that's a disqualifying factor. And then he goes on to say that a deacon ought not be dishonest. Uh, He talks about being greedy for dishonest gain. What does that mean? It means you're always working an angle, looking for ways to to cheat on your taxes, making investments in shady and moral businesses. Those are the sort of things that we would talk about in referencing this greedy for dishonest gain. And say, well, I got those those four Ds checked. I'm good. I I can serve. Except you can't. Because there's another set here that we need to consider. And it's not just the deacon, it's also the deacon's family. We spend a lot of energy 
talking about the characteristics of the man selected as deacon. And we spend far less time talking about the family of that man. I've said in a lot of ordination councils, and I've always thought it was interesting that we focus all of our energies on talking to the man who is set apart to serve, but we don't spend any energy talking to the woman who's coming alongside of him. Because the scripture's clear here that, that you got the man who serves as deacon, but his wife matters too. His wife is, she matters so much that, that I think that what Paul is saying here is that if she doesn't check these boxes, that she can disqualify him from serving. And again, I, I, we don't emphasize that for some reason, and I don't have a good reason for why we don't. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the wife's character as much as he spends talking about the husband's character. And what we find is when we put these two side by side is that there's actually some close parallels between what is said about him versus what is said about her. Paul actually says that she's to be dignified as well. It's the same word, same exact word used to describe the husband as used to describe the wife. If the wife of a deacon or potential deacon is not respectable, if she's not honorable, then her husband should absolutely not serve as a deacon. That's what Paul is saying here is that if the wife is trouble, the husband's not fit to serve either because they're, they're closer than, 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 you, than you get it, right? You don't separate that. You don't get one without the other. Even if he is of outstanding moral character, her dishonorable reputation is a disqualifying characteristic. As I was thinking about this, you know who came to my mind? Well, he said, no, I'm kidding, right? Hosea, the prophet Hosea came to my mind. Hosea, the prophet. Hosea was, was called by God to be a prophet, but part of Hosea's call, he was called to marry a woman who was dishonorable. I won't go into her profession. You can go look it up if you like, but let's just say she was not a nice lady. Hosea was a prophet of God. God called Hosea to be a prophet, but in doing so, he said, you're going to be an object lesson for the people of Israel. You're going to show the people of Israel what my love for the people of Israel is like. And in doing so, he called Hosea to marry this woman. Hosea was called by God to be a prophet, but guess what? He would have never been able to serve as a deacon because his wife, on again, off again wife, was, a woman, was of a, a woman of ill repute. Goes on, he says that she must not be a slanderer. Paul talks about the man being double-tongued. He uses a similar word here to talk about the woman. The woman ought not be a slanderer. You know, the word here is, is incredible. The word that Paul uses is the same word that we get devil from. It's the same, like you've heard the word diabolical. That's the word that he uses here to talk about someone slandering. And there's a reason that, being, that we get the word devil from someone slandering. When we slander someone, we are unjustly attacking their moral character. It's exactly what the serpent did in the garden. He slandered God's reputation. He slandered God's word. It's exactly the same thing. And so that, that deacon wife shouldn't be a slanderer. It should be somebody who's using her mouth and her words for trouble. And then he goes on to say that she must be sober-minded means that she's not given over to any extremes in behavior. And considering how these things are paralleled, I would say that it seems that it's particularly in relation to alcohol. A wife that's addicted to much wine disqualifies her husband, even if he's a teetotaler. That's what that would say here. Then it goes on. The last thing it says about her is that she is faithful in all things. Again, is she going to be perfect in all things? No. No, because she's a sinner. She comes up short, just like he does. He's a sinner. He comes up short. 
but faithful in all things. Again, in the parallel of these qualifications, this would seem to be her commitment to truth and integrity. She would be someone who is trustworthy. She would be someone that you could tell something in confidence to and know that she is faithful and she will keep that confidence between you and her. That's what that's talking about here, being faithful in all things. Again, ladies, if you say, you know, my husband's not interested in being a deacon, so I don't care about any of this stuff, you miss the point. Because these are character traits that are not just for you if your husband is pursuing the office of deacon. These are character traits that we should all ascribe, uh, uh, seek, to, seek to be, seek to, uh, to, to uh, affirm. But he goes on. There's more than just the wife of the deacon. He goes on and talk about that he ought to be a husband of one wife. That ought to be a one woman man. A deacon ought to be committed to his wife and vice versa. What's that mean? It means there's no room for girlfriends or boyfriends on the side. He shouldn't be a flirt. He shouldn't be a porn addict. That's, those are important things about being a one-woman man. He then goes on and says that, that deacons should manage their children and household well. And some of y'all are like, oh, well. There it went. I'll have resignations on my desk when, uh, by the time we're done here. No, you can't quit. Um, hear me in this it doesn't say that their children are perfect. Can we please just acknowledge that? That our children are not perfect. We all know the pastor's kids are the way they are because they hang out with deacon's kids. <laughs> Listen to me. Kids are great at many things, but one of the things that kids are really good at is sin, most kids, most kids could be considered professional sinners by the time they're six or seven years old. And for the rest of their childhood, they're simply honing the skill. Some of y'all with four or five-year-olds are thinking you've already got the grandmaster of all things sinful in your home. I can assure you it only gets better. <laughs> Listen to me, man. You are not responsible for per perfecting your child's heart. Only Jesus can do that. You cannot perfect your child's heart. Only Jesus can do that. You are responsible for how you raise them. You are responsible for how you instruct them. You're responsible for the priorities that you help them set, but you cannot sanctify their hearts. Only Christ can do that. But when we're talking about managing our children, because that's the word he uses there, managing our children, that points to something logistical. It points to the logistics of, of education, the logistics of health, the logistics of their well-being. All those are things that, that honestly, if you're just getting through a season of life, you understand what it means to kind of manage those things. You're managing their schedule. You're managing their doctor's appointments. You're managing their practice schedules. But understand this, this also points to their spiritual well-being as well. You invest in their academic development. You manage their academic development. You ensure that they're doing their homework. They're studying for the test. Think of how much effort parents you put into making sure that your child does their best in school or whatever pursuits they are after. You make sure that they are practicing their instrument, that they're, that they're going to practice for their athletic things. You're making sure those things are happening. But don't neglect their spiritual well-being in the process of doing so. There are no guarantees that your child is going to become a Christian. They have to make that decision on their own. 
they have to decide to follow Jesus or reject Jesus. There are no guarantees that your child is going to become a Christian. What you can do, though, is make sure that you have paved the pathway as clearly as possible. And you can't do that if you're not also trying to manage their spiritual well-being. Today's families are excellent at managing many things. I saw an ad the other day for a touchscreen digital calendar that you could hang on the wall and you could walk by and it was family management to the nth degree. You could see the meal that was planned. You could see the event that was happening. You could see everything. Everything was laid out. But we can't manage everything else so well that we do not take the time to invest in the greater good of faith and family. What good does it do our child if we have given them the world, but we've not taken care of their soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his very soul? We can manage all the things. We can have the straight A student, the band captain, the football captain, we can manage all the things. But if we're neglecting their soul, we're doing them a great disservice and we're doing the next generation a great disservice as well. I skipped over a verse though on purpose because I wanted to come back and hit that section last. Paul says in verse nine that the deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's an interesting statement because he gives us a very straightforward list of, of qualifications. I mean, we don't, you could read this without any commentary. You could read this without having to dig into original languages. It's very straightforward, even easily translated for into English. But then he throws in this really almost encrypted statement that he does these things, she does these things, but then he is to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What he's speaking to here is regarding the deacon's testimony. The mystery here that Paul is talking about refers to those incredible truths of the gospel. And again, this mystery here, it's not like a secret handshake that you learn when you become a deacon, which gentlemen, make sure you don't show that to anybody. We may give a new deacon a book with some pointers, some advice contained within its pages, but we're not talking about secret clubs and mystery societies. It really comes down to a simple question. Do you trust the gospel? Can you share the gospel? Do you not only know about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, do you know why it was necessary? Do you know why it was necessary for you? Not clinically, not, not theologically, but personally. Do you know why Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, do you know why it was important for you? Do you not only know why, but recognize that you also have to receive it to be born again? The reality is this morning is that there are people under the sound of my voice, either in the room or watching from home, that will answer that question in the negative. There are people who do not trust, do not know, and cannot share the gospel. The problem is that there are even those in our gathering this morning who are among us, but who are not with us. They sing the songs, listen to the sermons, but if they're honest... They don't really hold on to the mystery of the faith, the gospel, with a clear conscience. Again, this is not a deacon problem. This is a problem for all of us. And I think it's important that Paul had to clarify this in the list of qualifications for being a deacon. Uh, hey, you really need to be a Christian. 
Like, why do we have to say that? Why is it important that that be brought up, brought to light? Like, you would think that that would almost be assumed in what we're talking about here. Here's another reference from the 90s. My Gen X card must be on full display today. Lebeck versus McDonald's restaurants, also known as the McDonald's coffee case and hot coffee lawsuit, was a highly publicized 1994 lawsuit in the United States against McDonald's restaurant chains. The plaintiff, Stella Leback, a 79-year-old woman, suffered third-degree burns in her lap region when she accidentally spilled coffee after purchasing it from a McDonald's restaurant. Now, today, if you go buy a hot cup of coffee from a restaurant, that cup is stamped with what? Hot coffee, caution. Reminding you that the coffee you just bought might in fact be Oh, y'all are smart this morning. Jeff Foxworthy used to have a bit one time where he was making fun of some of the directions and warnings on products, various products. And he came to the conclusion that those warnings on those products only exist because somewhere somebody tried it. And now they have to tell everyone not to do what they just did. One would think that faithfulness to the gospel would be a natural process of choosing a deacon. Like, that's like, write your name on the paper. I mean, that, we're, we're, we're at that level at this point. Like, do you know and love Jesus? Do you, do you believe the gospel? Do you trust the gospel? But the fact that Paul had to include it tells me that it's not as obvious as one might expect. I don't believe for a second that Timothy would ever allow a man to serve who was not a Christian. But I think the caution is here because there are people who look the part and have everyone else deceived. The first staff member I ever hired checked all the boxes, knew the right answers, had degrees to show, but there was one thing he lacked. He'd never truly been tested. And when his life experienced some testing, he revealed that he did not in fact hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. One of the deepest heartbreaks of my ministry over the last 21 years is that young man had us all deceived and even deceived himself, but did not hold to the mystery of the faith, did not believe the gospel. And as heartbreaking as it is to see that unfold, it is something that we have to be mindful of. There are people and maybe this is you, check all the boxes. Look really good doing it so that you pass the muster. There are men who can check all the boxes and answer all the questions and they pass the muster to become a deacon. But this lesson's for all of us. Looking the part and having a transformed heart are not the same thing. It's not the same thing. I believe with all my heart that Christians ought to be at church on Sunday unless they're providentially hindered. I believe that. People say, do I have to come to church to be a Christian? No, but if you're a Christian, you ought to be in church. I believe that with every fiber of my being. But I also believe this. Coming into this place and having a seat will not save you and will not grant you any standing before the Lord. I believe both. 
Those are not mutually exclusive truths. Coming into this place will not transform your heart because you can do all sorts of things that look faithful, but not one of those acts will gain you one ounce of standing before the Lord. The list is not the deacon needs to do all these good things and then maybe God will have him. He's got to recognize the gospel, believe and trust in the gospel. And the caution here is very real. There are those who pass the test as far as the qualifications go, but who do not actually love and affirm the gospel. And as always, those realities must cause us to examine our own hearts. As we as a church engage in the process of considering those men who may be qualified to serve as deacons, it's also appropriate for us to examine our own hearts as well. Because again, these character traits are, are important, but they're not pie-in-the-sky requirements. We're not talking about seminary degrees and, and a mastery of all things theological. We're not asking people to parse Greek verbs and understand Hebrew vowels. We were talking about the deacon Philip on Wednesday night and the fact that he demonstrated mastery over the demons in his ministry. We're not gonna ask potential deacons to perform an exorcism before they can be ordained to serve in that role. These character traits are really quite simple and they should be something that we're all moving toward in the process of our sanctification. At the same time, though, it's that kind of character that should be expected among those who would wish to shepherd the flock of God. So the question is, why would you see, expect to see anything less in your leaders, but honestly, why would you expect to see anything less in your own heart if indeed you hold to the mystery of the gospel with a clean conscience? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word that it speaks to us with clarity about these things. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us freedom in so many ways. You've allowed us to have the freedom to have committees or not have committees. You've allowed us to have the freedom to do ministries or not do ministries. You've given us the, the freedom to, to make some decisions about those things. But Lord, in the middle of the freedom that we have to structure things as we see wise to do, you've also given us consistency. And we recognize as we approach this biblically today that there is the consistency in the office of those who would serve as deacon. And God, you've given us consistency in the qualifications of, of what that man might look like. You've given, us, you've given us consistency in the qualifications of what his family should look like. And I thank you, Lord, that, that you don't ask for, for these things to be perfected because we're all being perfected. There's not a perfect one among us. But we are working towards that. It is, it is our goal. It is our progress. It is the, the direction our lives are taking. And so, Lord, I pray not just for those men who serve as deacons or those men who might potentially serve as deacons. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would all seek to have character that is exemplary as defined in 1 Timothy 3. I pray for our marriages, that our marriages might reflect those sorts of things as well. Or it's not just for this man to, to check the boxes, it's for the health of families and ultimately for the health of churches. 
So Lord, I pray today that if there's any here in this space who would say, you know what, pastor, I've checked a lot of boxes in my life, but I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus. I do not hold to the mystery of the gospel with a clean conscience. I pray that today in this place that they would recognize that checking those boxes, entering this space, doing all those works are good, but they won't save us. They won't grant us standing before you. We've got to first deal with the gospel. And then out of the overflow of the gospel, we worship and we serve and we do all those things. It's such a treasure as your children to be able to come into this place and worship you as your children. I couldn't imagine walking in here and trying to worship you as one who is estranged from you. So God, if there's any here, they learned some things about deacons today, but perhaps the most important thing they've learned is that their heart is far from you. I pray that today they would place their trust in Jesus. Give them the courage to have that conversation. To say, I look good, but my heart is not good. And Father, I pray that if there's any in this room who, after hearing this, may be struggling with what you may be calling them to be and how to serve, I pray that you might make it clear in their own hearts what your calling and what your leadership is in that. So God, I pray that you move now in this place, that you would call out those that you've called, and that you would lead those who are far from you back home. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.